Okay, you know, there is in every hurricane both a sense of fear, maybe worry, and yet also, at least according to my wife, a sense of excitement or expectation, almost a sense of danger in God. How are you going to bring us through this? Um, Maybe my wife has been reading too many mysteries. I don't know. But this is the stuff of hurricanes in our family. And uh, we fared well. I am so grateful. Um, do you guys, Streebies, do you guys have power yet? You're powered. Amen. Pa- oh, okay. Wow. Awesome. Awesome. They, Duke said, uh, we're going to, hopefully by Sunday night, we'll give you power. So uh, glad to hear you guys have power. Anybody else here who does not have power in your home that you may need some, you guys, and you're all the way out in Pine Hills, right? Ah. Well, I tell you what, we, we offered some families, and you can spend the night to get a respite from the, uh, the heat if you would like. I extend that offer to you. Um, but we had an interesting thing, and, and I, I regularly find myself in a dilemma. Do we board up or do we not? How many of you boarded up for this past hurricane? Okay, a number of you did. The problem with me, with me, and I don't know what exactly the issue is, though I have a, great, a, a good idea, I believe, and that is when we affix the boards to our windows, well, actually to the outside of our walls that covers our windows, then we have to drill tap cons, big screws, into the wall. And this time I put caulk around them to make sure that there was no leakage, and yet we still got leakage next to the, the two main windows on the east side. And it's like, Lord, please, what do we do here? And so I'm choosing to invest in uh, Plylox wind, uh, hurricane clips and plywood that's going to fit my window just right. And so I'm switching things out. But with this water intrusion into our home, I was up for most of that one night while the winds were blowing, gusting. I don't know how high did they get, 90 or I'm not exactly how high the winds gusted. Um, but uh, they were pretty strong, and the winds were beating against our house, and about a foot out in certain areas, we got water intrusion. And so throughout the night, I set my alarm from 9 in the evening. I did this until 8 the next morning. Every hour, I would get up, and I would put fresh towels there, kind of step on them a bit. And through this process, I guess, what do you call it, osmosis, whatever it is, in which the water, it would, the, the water would travel into the, the towels, and then I would throw them into the uh, the, the washing machine on spin cycle and then throw them into the dryer. And so every hour, praise God, our, we still had power to do this. My hands would have been so red wringing those towels out. But so during the night, and so it was just, it was exhausting for me. And I think I'm still recuperating. For, I don't do well when I don't get good sleep. And this hurricane, uh, it, for many of us, uh, I mean, it took us, Jim and I, three or four hours uh, probably closer to six even, to put the boards up at the windows. And then I had Jim take the boards down, and he boom, 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 he just took them down, lickety-split. And I'm trying to keep up with them, filling the holes in. And uh, But they were down in probably an hour, less than two anyway. And my point is that there are certain truths in the Bible that when we encounter them and bless them, it's as if we are putting the boards up with those ply locks. And it actually, to put these boards up in your windows, it takes a matter of minutes as opposed to hours. The other way that is not following these biblical principles and doing it our way, it exhausts us. It requires so much effort. And the end result, 
Hello, water intrusion. And then you're up all night trying to take care of that. And we're going to look at a certain truth today that is going to stand in stark contrast to what's commonly in our day called Christian humanism. Maybe you've read it in some books. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Now, I understand what they're trying to get at. That is, you need to have confidence that you can do this. But that's only part of the equation. The other part of the equation is found in Philippians, in which it says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And our problem is that even Christians are bound in this work, 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 and we begin to lose sight of this truly profound biblical principle of grace. Now, many of us, we understand grace for the most part. We've we believed in Jesus Christ. We have received the forgiveness of sins. We have actually been justified and declared righteous. We understand this, and yet there is this tendency of ours to come under law rather than under grace. So if you would, turn with me to the passage we're going to be looking at, and uh, from there kind of springing into other verses, but Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Now, <laughs> over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be sharing some principles from the book of Romans that is going to strike us rather oddly. And it's because it paints a picture like you are saints, which means holy ones in the Greek, and you are not called sinners any longer. But wait a second. I find that I still sin. The Bible in Romans 6, we're not going to look at this passage today, but next week, it actually says that we die to sin. But if we die to sin, why do I still sin? And there is this paradox in many truths in the Bible that we need to apprehend, and we're going to do this by faith. So here's my illustration for you. And I realize that in Hebrews 3 and 4, the illustration is applied slightly differently than what I'm going to do today. But I am only using this as an analogy, as a backdrop to help us grasp these principles that we're going to go over today in the next few weeks. You're aware of the Exodus and how people were enslaved in Egypt. And as we now move into the New Testament, authors regularly refer to that captivity as our captivity to sin. You follow me? So they were set free from the captivity of Egypt via the Exodus, and now they find themselves in the desert. They receive the Mosaic law, and then they immediately go into the promised land, right? Not. They wander for 40 years because why? They lacked faith. Now, I'm going to propose to you that there are three categories, if you will, of people on this earth. There are those who remain in Egypt. They are lost in their sin. And that was me until I was age 14. And that was many, if not all of you, until a particular age in which Christ, through the message of the gospel, the gospel came alive to you. You understood it. You embraced it. And you chose to follow Jesus. You placed your faith in Jesus. And he set you free from the captivity of Egypt. And now you've entered into the desert, and he's instructing you, and you're about to enter into the promised land, but there is a problem. 
And that is, these truths that I want to share with you, they are promises that come under this heading of what it means for us to be in Christ. And it is going to paint a reality, a spiritual reality for us, that if we don't get them, we will continue to wander in the wilderness. How did they enter the promised land? Which I am now going to equate with the verse I'm going to read here. That is grace. How did they enter it? By faith. When they were in the desert, their mindset was not, we are going to be the new inhabitants of the promised land. The vast majority of them, and this was the curse that was brought upon them, they lacked faith and they saw the giants as the inhabitants of the land. And there's no way that they would be able to take the land. Now, I'm not going to repeat all that we went through last year when we went through the book of Joshua. Awesome book. Awesome truths to be able to walk in. So what I'm doing now is I am taking this concept of what it is to be in Christ. And we're going to look at a number of them, such as being dead to sin. Well, how is it that I am dead to sin? And why am I called a saint, a holy one, if I still struggle with sin? Now, here is my proposal to you. That many Christians in the church today still wander in the desert. This is my analogy. They still wander in the desert. And they fail to walk in the promised land and apprehend all of this inheritance that God has to offer them because they lack faith. Let me read the passage. And as we walk this out, as we look deeply at this, I think you're going to get this. Romans 6, chapter, excuse me, Romans chapter 6, verse 14. For sin shall not promise shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. So here is the truth. This is what I want us to get. And this is what we're going to need to unwrap this morning and apprehend this truth. And it's this, if, if we truly get this, that we are not under law, but we are under grace, what is the effect or the result of that? You, or rather sin, shall have no mastery over you. Can I ask you a question? How many of you here would love to have sin no longer controlling you, mastering you, leading you, putting a hook in your jaw and leading you astray? I would love that. And so in order to do that, we are going to discover it is not going to be by pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps. It's not going to be by putting in more effort, and I am going to be holy. I am going to be more holy. It is not going to be by doing some, you know, okay, I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to worship, and then I'm going to evangelize, and then I'm going to fellowship, and then I'm going to... And before you know it, we are this little hamster on the treadmill, and we are going nowhere because we are doing it all by our human effort and not under grace. So, what then does it mean to be under law? Because this is a truth. But as Christians, we fail to understand this truth. And as a result, we fail to walk fully under this concept of grace. Being under grace is a truth. Just as dying, we are dead to sin. Our old man has been crucified. These are truths. But if we are under grace, 
then why do we still struggle with sin? Because it says, truth, you are not under law, you are under grace, so sin shall not be your master. Then God, why do I feel at times it's my master? And that's the question we need to answer today. <coughs> what does it mean to live under law? Now, you may remember we kind of t- looked at and, and analyzed this concept of what it means to be under sin. It's the same in the Greek. It's the same preposition, under sin. So if we understand what it means to be under sin, we're going to have a better idea as far as what it means to be under law. So if you were to go back to the previous chapter of chapter 3, and you were to look at verse 9, it says that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And the next several verses, quotes from the Old Testament, especially in the book of Psalms, Paul lays out for us what it means to be under sin. And it means to be under the power, the influence, the authority, and the control of sin itself. So that we are incapable of doing anything that is actually considered good in the eyes of God. All of our, you remember this, all of our best efforts at righteousness are filthy rags, Isaiah 64 says. Can you say ouch with me? Wow, God, my best efforts, lost in my sin as a non-Christian, my best efforts to do what's good, to do what's righteous is actually filthy rags to you, really? And so we get into, we got into this nature of sin and its corruptive powers. Sin was a taskmaster of us. It controlled us. And so what it means to be under sin, that concept now translates, because Paul is assuming you understand this idea of what it means to be under something. We used to be under law, but now we are under the control and the influence of grace itself. Now, there is a lot to unwrap here and and, and get. And so... uh, I realize that I'm going to have to pare a lot of this down and kind of just go for the main concepts for us to understand what it means to be under law. So here is my question to you. For you personally, where does your power and ability come from to obey God and stop sinning? Where does that come from? Does it come from the law? That is, well, you know what? God says to be perfect even as I am perfect, so I'm going to take his law, and I am, I am really going to try hard to do it completely. Guess what? You will fail, and you will sin, and you will find yourself with this weight of condemnation. You are nothing but a failure, Mike Curtis, You have tried so hard, and you still can't do it. And so we can either look to the law and give it our best effort, or we can look to grace. And I believe that Paul is saying here that is exactly what we need to do. 
Let's turn to chapter seven. We're going to read six verses here, and we're going to kind of just jump right into this question. Because it's sounding as if the law, whatever that is, is not for us today. We're not under its influence or authority, has nothing to say to us. So we take all of the law and we throw it out the window. Because all that remains now is in the New Testament is grace, right? And this is, this is what we can feel like this passage is saying. And, and as you would blog or, or go on, rather go on online and inf- look at what bloggers have to say, find out what theologians might have to say, find out what other pastors might have to say, find out what your next door neighbor has to say, you're going to see that they're all over the place. And there is something out there that it, the teaching is this. We take then the entire law and we throw it out. The moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Throw it all out and we start anew in the New Testament. Okay? And we need to speak to that. And the temptation of mine is to speak to it at length. Because I really want us to get this and I want us to know the word. Um, and, and how do I answer these people's questions? But I'm not going to do that today. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but we, I, I will touch on it a bit. And, and, and if you're looking for more, we can talk later. But I realize that for me to really grasp this truth that we're not under law, but under grace, I want to give grace its proper due attention. And so as we go through this, you listen, and then let's sort through this. Chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to men who know the law, even though many Gentiles in Rome, there were many Jews, and they knew the law. So he's not speaking to an ignorant people. That the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress even though she marries another man. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that is through his death on the cross, that you might belong to another who, by the way, is that very one who died, Christ himself, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. In other words, I've got to die to the law in order to bear fruit. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, that is the flesh, as some of your versions say, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, That is, in Christ. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Or as some of your versions say, more literally, the letter. That is, the letter of the law. In the Old Testament, you and I lived at that time, we would be bound 
by the Mosaic Law. Mosaic Law would include the moral law, that is, do this and don't do this. And by the way, if you were to read through all of the moral law, if you were to sort through the entire Mosaic Law and extract the moral law from that, you will find many times more do-nots than you find do. And it is for this reason that Paul, in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1, says that the law is for lawbreakers. You see, the law says do not. It is like that, my analogy would be this, like uh, a, an electric fence around your property. It demarcates the edge of your property, and your dogs, as wonderful as they are, will play within that boundary and not beyond. And the law says, if you go beyond this, that is wrong. And guess what? You will bear the consequences of that, and you will be electrocuted. Now, I'm going to leave it up to you as far as how strong that electric fence is. But regardless, it, there are consequences to this concept, do not. And so it is for lawbreakers. You don't recognize you're breaking the law and, until you do something that the law says do not do. But grace, the focus of the New Testament, is not where those boundaries are so much as what happens in the backyard. Do you follow my analogy here? Tell me, how do I live in this kingdom and how can I be empowered to follow Christ? And so Paul says the Old Testament, the law, is for law. It shows you where the boundaries are. It's not going to help you live in this Christian life. It may explain some things, but it's not going to empower you. Christians today regularly look to the moral law to find out how can I be a better Christian? How can, and, and, and if, if I just put enough effort, I can love my neighbor as I should. And we need to ask then the question, what does the law, purpose of the law, serve? Because it says right here that I, am I was bound to the law and I need to be released from the law in order to walk in the newness of the Spirit, to be under grace. <clears throat> First, let me ask you this. Who, look at the passage here, first paragraph. Who is the man that dies, and who is the woman that remains? I think it's easy to answer the question, well, the woman is you and me, because now that the husband is dead, she is free from that law that says you are bound to your husband. But here is the nuance when we ask the question, who is the man? And the man is you yourself as well. And that is explained in the previous chapter. The old me has died, and therefore the authority of the law is rendered powerless over me. Because the law says, do not, do not, do not, and it reveals my sin, and it finds me guilty and condemned. And the response then in the Old Testament was, well, you just got to try harder. And that was the weakness of the law. 
They kept on wandering, kept on trying to follow the law and do the do's and don't do the don'ts, and they constantly failed, and the result is that they were condemned. And Paul says in Galatians that life never came from obeying the law. The law can never justify you. Try as hard as you will, all it will do is find you guilty. And so by being under the authority of the law, we are now under the condemnation of the law. And when I say the law, I mean the entirety of the law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law, or what some people call the judicial law, eye for eye. And we, we need to realize Paul is speaking about this, the entire law, and as the, as the system of the law existed, the sense of condemnation that followed existed as well. And so when Christ came to do away with the law, he broke the back of this condemnation. And now we stand not condemned, but we stand in forgiveness and justification. So the question then is, so when we do away with the law as a whole, what remains? The law, if you will, has been dismantled. It says that the ceremonial law were shadows of what is now fulfilled in Christ, who is the body. That's Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. That is the ceremonial law. For these were a shadow of things to come. The body, or the reality, is found in Christ. So we, I think we can get this. Okay, so when God is dismantling the law, the ceremonial has been fulfilled. There certainly is no more condemnation. I could speak to the civil law, but I think I would be foolish to pursue that because that was going to take a lot closer look and would be beyond my purposes today. But the moral law, that's what I want to focus on. What do we do about the moral law? Now go with me to Matthew chapter 5, because those who would embrace this concept of antinomianism, which simply means, big word, $10 word, which simply means against law, antinomos. Antinomianism is against the law. They say, let's take the moral law and we throw it out. We don't need it. We don't need the Ten Commandments. We don't need the rest of the Mosaic Law. We're just going to live in the New Testament. Okay, well, that may sound fine and good. I'm going to share with you, and again, this is the brief, this is the brevity of how I'm going to treat this. There are six reasons why we cannot do that. The moral law comes through the cross of Christ because the, mor because the moral law is a reflection of the holiness of God who does not change. Do you follow that? If God said, do not murder, it's because that is a reflection of the holiness of God and who God is. So if God doesn't change, murder is wrong both in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. That has never changed. Now we're going to find that this is the essence of the entire moral law. It is a reflection of the character of God, and God doesn't change. So Old Testament or New, it's the same. So that is one reason why we just can't simply, simply uh, willy-nilly take the entire law, including the moral law, and throw it out. The moral law and the founders of this nation recognized 
the enduring qualities of the moral law and the civil law. And in John Locke's treatise of the government, book one and book two, he quoted scripture 1,500 times, as I understand. And he based what he had to say about how to establish government according to the word of God. Now, the founding fathers, if you look at why they established, and by the way, their records, their discussions in Congress were written down, and you can read them, but they quoted scripture. Uh, as far as all of the quotes out there, it was between 30 and 40% of their quotes were from scripture. Uh, people like John Locke in the teens, percentage-wise, they placed a high value on Scripture. They themselves, if we're going to follow, if we're going to be a na one nation under God, they said we're going to embrace the moral law of God. So, I think we understand that the moral law is a reflection of the holiness of God, who truly does not change. Now, we come to Matthew 5, and it says that uh, he, he, Jesus says to them, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. But these people who we call antinomianism, antinomianists, they would say, well, the law has benefit, but just not for me as a Christian. It's for sinners, and it's to convict them of sin to lead them to Christ. And I don't deny that the law is there for the sinners and bring them to conviction. But they continue to reveal to us the will of God. So if you were to want to follow Christ, what would that look like? You would want to do his will. I mean, that's the essence of chapter 7 where he says those who don't do the will of God will be those who say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I heal people in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And he goes on to talk about the story, the parable of the house built on rock and the house built on sand. And that rock is the teaching of Jesus who constantly, point number two, Jesus constantly based his teaching on the moral law of the Old Testament. I mean, if you don't believe me, just read through. You read through this passage right here six times. He appeals to the moral law, but he says, now I'm going to tell you, go one step further and follow the spirit of the law. Does Jesus get rid of the commandment that says do not murder? Does he say get rid of the commandment eye for eye, tooth for tooth? No. The eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the problem is they took it out of the courtroom and brought it into the living room. In other words, they, start, they took this that the state was supposed to apply, and they personally applied it. So if you kill my brother, I'm going to kill your brother. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. And the law there says, no, 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 wait a second. You don't have that authority. That's in the hands of the civil government. If you murder, if someone murders your brother, you take it to the court. And according to the law, if he, if he was murdered, first-degree murder, he is to be put to death. Wow. Now, Jesus then says he is not getting rid of the moral law. He is holding it up, and he says, now follow the spirit of the law. So great. You don't commit adultery. Kudos. That's awesome, because that's, that's exactly what, what God tells us to do. But you lust after your neighbor's wife. 
And, and you think you're keeping the law. No, you're not. You're keeping the letter of the law, but not the heart or the spirit of the law. So Jesus' goal was to fulfill it, walk it out, and then expand it. And then he said, all of these laws are fulfilled with this one commandment or two commandments. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then goes on and he says this, follow me in verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others, teaches others to do the same will be called least in the Old Testament. Is that what your version says? Now, in the kingdom of heaven, in the new covenant, if you're going to teach someone to break the moral law, oh, you need to follow that, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Don't you feel a caution here now where Jesus is saying, don't go around telling people that you, they don't need to obey the moral law. No. If you do that and tell them it's okay to break it, then you yourself will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's a serious charge. And he says in verse 20, For I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the Pharisees followed the letter, and Jesus said, that will never be enough. Now let's go back to this concept of grace. We, we, we understand then that Matthew 7, he, it's clear we don't throw the moral law away. The moral law, we look at first, was the moral law is reflected of God's holiness who doesn't change. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament moral laws with authority. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Honor your father and mother, the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and you may have long life on the earth. Now, if the moral law is dead and we've died to it and it therefore speaks nothing to us and we don't need to care about the Mosaic or the moral law, then why does Paul quote it as if there is authority in it? Honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you. He's speaking after the cross. He's speaking after Christ fulfilled the law, and yet he says, honor this law. Honor your father and mother. So if we're going to throw the moral law away, why does Paul still treat it as if he did not? And, and as a matter of fact, all the New Testament commands are based upon Old Testament commands. <clears throat> Hebrews 8 is a quote from Jeremiah 31, and it says that the Old Covenant was inadequate. The inadequacy of the Old Covenant to make you holy was felt throughout the Old Testament. So here's what I'm going to do. Hebrews, the author, the quote from Jeremiah, I am now going to put my spirit in you. I am going to write my laws, the moral laws, the moral mosaic laws on your heart. As a Christian, God has written his laws on your heart. And when you break that law, there is what's called the conviction of the spirit. And there is a desire to follow Jesus rather than to follow the sinful nature. And this is because the spirit is in you. You're a new creation. And so this passage in Hebrews 8 says, the law of God is now written on your hearts. And then number six, the last thing I want us to see and I want us to spend the rest of our time with is this, Ezekiel 36, 27. Reason six, why we don't just throw away the moral law. 
Ezekiel 36, verse 27, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God has put his spirit in you and there is something now inside of you as a follower of Jesus that longs to obey him. It longs to obey him. You see, now God's law as a whole is no longer a standard whereby we measure our standing with God. Let me say that again. God's law as a whole is no longer, that is the moral law, the civil law, I mean, be circumcised, follow the festivals, make sure you sacrifice things right, don't mix two seeds in the same field, all of this, the civil law, all of it together, that when you break it also brings condemnation, all of that was a standard whereby we measured our standing with God. That is done with. It is gone. So being under law, as we go back to this passage, Romans 6, verse 14. Under law means this. It means that there is now an obligation to obey or be condemned. If you're going to live under law, if you're going to put your best foot forward, and I'm going to try and follow this moral law, and I'm going I'm to do this, there is this sense of human effort. There is this sense of obligation and following this sense of condemnation. You will never measure up. Try as hard as you may. Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. Having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? You see, the Spirit of God, it, He convicted you of sin. When you trusted in Christ, He came in and He regenerated you. He gave you a whole new nature. The Spirit of God now indwells you, longing to follow after and pursue Christ. He sanctified and justified you. Or to put it more appropriately, He justified and sanctified you. He empowers you to follow Him he and to live holy. He empowers you to walk in the spiritual gifts that He's bestowed upon you. The Spirit of God has empowered you. If that's the case, why is it now that you want to add circumcision and observing holy days and seeking to be justified by the moral law and found in right standing with God? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? And this is the essence of being under law. It is human effort. It is me trying as hard as I can to obey God. You find yourself many times, even as Christians, butting up against this principle every January 1st, don't you? New Year's resolutions. Okay, I'm going to go on a diet, and this time I am going to stick with it. Okay, I'm going to have a quiet time five times a day, every day. Yep. Mm -hmm. Good luck with that one. I am going to 
I'm going to pray every time I touch a doorknob. Now, I, I like that principle that we went over Friday night, by the way. I like that. But if we're not careful, it becomes law to us. The sense of obligation, I must. And guess what happens if you don't? Condemnation, guilt, sense of worthlessness. How can God love me? I fall short. I'm a failure. You know where I'm going with this. This is the idea of being under law. It's not just the more, even if it is not just what the law says and the condemnation that comes from disobeying it. It is me in my best efforts to obey it and do it. And it failed in the Old Testament. Why? Because they did not have the spirit. So now we move on and we talk and, and Paul says, Paul tells us, if you're not under law, guess what, church? Woohoo! You are under grace. So let's talk about this grace. If I'm under grace, it now says I can be free from sin. I mean, is this not something that you hunger for? I want to be free from sin. Now, eventually, we will be completely free in heaven. Amen. And I look forward to that day. I truly do. But how are you going to do it now? Are you going to put your best foot forward? Every January 1st, are you going to say, I'm going to do it this year. I am really going to follow Christ this year. And you line up all of the moral law, and I'm, I'm going to do it now. Good luck with that. Having begun with the Spirit, are you now going to really try and attain your goal by human effort? Really? You're under law. You're going to wander in the wilderness. You will experience defeat upon defeat. You will not have the mindset of what it really means to inherit the land and all of that that Christ offers you who are in Christ. Instead, the Christian life is going to be all about you working as hard as you can. I would venture to say that most Christians, most of us, live under grace and under law. And that is the sadness of this. I would venture to say that there are times in my life in which I find myself living under law. And I feel the weight of condemnation when I shouldn't. And I fail to focus on all that Christ has attained for me and the grace available to me. And I start working hard, and I'm going to do better now, and, and God forgive me, I'll, I'll do better tomorrow. And wait, Mike, back the truth trolley up for a moment here. Are you really going to do it that way? Really? Can I give you an analogy, I think, that's going to help us as we grasp this truth of grace? And always remember, by grace through faith. By grace, through faith. So, you walk into the house, your house. Uh, Hurricane Irma did not knock your power out, so you're going to turn the light on in your house. How are you going to do that? Forgive me if this analogy is oversimplified, but I think you're going to get the point and appreciate it. Do you walk up to the chandelier, and do you decorate it more? Make it look really pretty? Do you walk over to the light switch and put a new light, whatever the cover, thank you, awesome, new cover on it? In my, in my bedroom, since it's decorated lighthouses, I've got a little lighthouse decorative. 
over it? And you know, do you decorate it more? You would think, oh, that's silly. Why would we do that? So maybe you say, I've got a great idea. I'm going to unscrew one of the light bulbs, and I'm going to walk around, and I'm going to scuff my feet. And if I do it enough, maybe the light bulb will turn on. Do you see the analogy here of our best effort? Christ is going to shine in me. He's the light of the world. And I missed my own joke. Okay. Christ is the light of the world, and I am now the light of the world. And how am I going to get this light to shine? This little light of mine. I'm going to let it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to scuff my feet. And by static electricity, this light bulb, give me enough time, church. It's going to turn on. Give me enough time here. It's going to turn on. And it never turns on. And it is all about what I do. And you know what? All you have to do is go over to the light switch and turn it on. Provided Hurricane Irma didn't knock your power out, right? Exactly. It is, and you're thinking, Pastor Mike, it can't be that simple. Walking in holiness can't be that simple. Yes, it is. See, that's our problem. We think it's got to be so hard. It, in America, this concept of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, you know, you got to work hard to get what you want. And, and I'm not opposed to that work ethic. It's just that it doesn't apply in the Christian life in following Christ. Because if you do it, you're going to be a slave to the law again in your best efforts. That's what it means to be under the law. I don't want that. So here's my question. Does the light switch actually turn the light on? No, it doesn't. My light switch is faith. I don't care how much faith you have. Your faith will not make you holy. God's grace does. When you turn that light switch on, what empowers that light bulb is the electricity in your house. That is grace. By grace, through faith. So if, if you want to walk in the light, it is by grace, through faith. I don't care how much you decorate your chandelier. You turn the light switch on. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If I'm not careful, I am going to start preaching for about two hours with this passage. So I am really going to try hard not to. <laughs> this is the passage that I could not get to when we talked about justification by faith. Our righteousness comes from Christ, not by observing the law. The thief that died on the cross did zero good works, and he was declared righteous on the cross. By faith, not good works. And it says here at the end of chapter 1, verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ. Remember those truths, the promised land in Christ. He's going to hit on one of these, and, it, and we need to apprehend it by faith. And he says, in Christ, who has become for us Wisdom from God, that is our righteousness. Christ is my righteousness, and it's been appropriated to me. And it is because of that that I am declared righteous. 
is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, chapter 2, verse 1, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as, a, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And here is my question. Awesome, Paul, that we find our declaration of righteousness in Christ and Christ alone. And we apprehend that by faith. Why does he jump into this little soliloquy here in these first five verses of chapter two? Where are you going with this, Paul? And it is for this reason, church, listen. You see, when you are in Christ and immersed in his grace, everything about your life is Christ. When you wake up in the morning, it is Christ. When you're eating your food, it is Christ. When you are at work in desperate need, it is Christ. Everything that you say, it is Christ because you are in Christ and everything that you need is fulfilled in Christ. Relationships that are broken, great. You're going to work as hard as you can to make it better. The truth is it will not until Christ becomes the answer. And how you follow through and love that person is not by trying as hard as you can. The answer is found in Christ. And so he, he, he shares this idea in Jesus Christ, who is my righteousness, holiness, and redemption. I've been bought by the blood of Christ. Now, let me tell you, so when I was among you, I was in Christ. And so all I wanted to know was Christ and him crucified. And I'm sharing this with you because wherever you are, this needs to be your focus and your passion as well. When you get this idea of being in Christ and you apprehend it with, by faith, Christ is everything to you. I remember when, well, I'm not going to share that story, never mind. Okay, all right, George Mueller. Um, A.T. Pearson was interviewing him because he was about to write a biography on his life. And George Mueller was writing, and suddenly his pen stopped working. Now, the thing that A.T. Pearson would do is, ah, let me pull a pen out of my pocket and offer it to you. And George Mueller paused for a moment and bowed his head for just a moment and then opened his eyes and began to write again. And he prayed. And God answered his prayer, let my pen work. How simple is this? And yet it's because everything in his life was connected to Christ. Do you have a problem? Christ. Do you have a need? Christ. Oh, so you're going to preach the word? Christ. You need some wisdom for how to discipline your child and get rid of this issue in his life? Christ. Everything is Christ. So when I was among you, Paul says, I just wanted to know him. I don't care what about Pluto and Aristotle and all your other Greek philosophers taught. Fine, I wanted to know Christ because that's where the source of my intelligence comes from. That's how I answer the fool. 
That's how I answer the skeptic or the atheist. It's through Christ. And so as I preach Christ, you may not get it, but I am not going to present to you some strong philosophical argument to win your mind and said, I came to you in the Spirit's power. That is what's going to change your heart. And that is what did change your heart. Because, it, because when I preach Christ, you see, Christ, the Holy Spirit then, began to operate. You preach Christ, the gospel, the Spirit of God begins to speak through you. And for Paul, the Spirit's power was displayed in two ways. It was displayed for him in miracles. And can I assure you that God can still do miracles today? He can still do miracles today. Now, now I've heard my cessationist brother say, argue and say, well, you know what? God doesn't do it that way because miracles confirm the, the speaker. And on and on they go. And we don't have apostles today, and they're not writing scripture, so they don't need to do miracles. And bop, 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 bop. And I'm thinking, well, do you not understand? What is at stake here? Do you not realize that the gospel, the, the, the miracles that Paul did, beyond confirming him as an apostle, it confirmed the word. No matter where you go, the miracles will always confirm the gospel. And that was their purpose. The gospel is preached today. God will still do miracles today. Uh, so beyond that. So yes, the Holy Spirit did miracles when Paul preached. But church, I think sometimes as charismatics or spirit-filled or whatever label you want to place on yourself, I really don't care, we can get caught up in this miracles. I want to see miracles. I want to see miracles. And we're actually disappointed when we don't see miracles. It's as if, God, can you please entertain me with another miracle? And, and that is not the purpose of miracles. Miracles change people's lives. And so when, when Paul was preaching, the other element of the Spirit's power was this. The Spirit of God invaded their life. That which was old was changed. When you believed in Jesus Christ, whether you can accept this or not, it stands true. You were changed. The, the former desires and urges and compellings, um, the, you wanted to sin. You were addicted to your sin. That is broken in Christ by the Spirit's power. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Spirit came with, with a demonstration of his power with deep conviction. See, when, when he's talking about the Spirit's power there, he says, he laid you open. He transformed you. You see, you were idolaters. Steeped. Remember, when you're worshiping an idol, Scripture says you're worshiping a demon. You were wrapped up in sorcery, whether you realized it or not. You were worshiping demons. You were in the occult, and you were in bondage, and Christ set you free. This is the work of the Spirit in the lost sinner to regenerate and make them a new creation in Christ. This is the demonstration of the Spirit's work. And as we were, I was talking with the guys, I want to see the glory of God displayed in this generation, in his church. And as Ezekiel saw the glory of God come down and fill the temple, 
he fell on his face. Why? Because of the magnificence of the glory of God displayed in this temple, which is a reflection of the body of Christ in the New Testament. I'm not going to reteach that. I don't need to. Church, I believe the world today is longing for a genuine people of God in which His glory is truly displayed in how you live. Do you wrestle with, with anger? So how are you going to whoop that one? I am going to put my best foot forward. Next time I start getting angry, I'm just going to really try hard to close my mouth and I won't say anything. Good luck with that, by the way. I'm not saying you shouldn't try that, but where is the reliance on the Spirit? Where is the fact that you're under grace? Where is this yieldedness to the Spirit? That is the only way in which you will walk in freedom from your anger. My dad had a horrible temper problem, put holes in walls. I inherited that from him. However you want to see that happen. I inher I, that was me as a teenager. When I would get in fights with my brothers, you remember my brother Rob, nicknamed Hulk. Um, he was huge. I could not wrap my arms around him. But my older brothers would love to see how he and I would fight. Because I was a, as a kid, I was a wild man, a little wild boy. And I would just swing like this, and, and I would just go at him like this. And he would try and pick me up. You know, there's a movie in which that, never mind. Um, and so I would do everything I could, to, and, and I would grab him, and I would do some bad things. And they were just not good. And, and I was so filled with anger, because my brothers would get me angry, and they loved to see me angry. And they would call me the leech, because I would grab onto you, and I, would, I was like a bulldog. I would not let you go. I would not let you go. I don't care how many times you hit me. I'd hide my face, and you couldn't hit the, the vital parts of me, and I would not let go. <laughs> I was a bulldog, and they called me the leech. And I had a horrible, horrible temper. I did everything but suck the blood out of you, okay? Yeah. And I, maybe I did do that. But the truth is, God had to heal me of that. God had to place his spirit in me and set me free from that control of anger. It was a demon. If I shock you with that, sorry. Satan controlled me. And he had to set me free so that I could walk in newness of life. You see, the answer was not that I should somehow, by my human effort and best foot forward, serve in the old way of the letter or the written code. I'm just going to do better next time. I'm really going to do it this time. That word serve, by the way, comes from the noun doulos. You know what doulos literally translated means? It means slave. You are no longer to be enslaved to the law but you are enslaved in the newness of the Spirit. Church, I want to be a slave to the Spirit of God. I want Him to control me. I want Him to be my master. 
I want him to break the chains and him to set me free. I want to turn the light switch on rather than doing all the best thing and scuff my feet and try and get that light bulb to turn on. It'll never work. Flip the light switch. Some of you, that's what you need to do. Simple as that. Flip the light switch. Fully rely on the grace of God. Remember, grace is everything that he has that I do not but desperately need. Victory over sin in this case. So here we go. I'm just going to close with this. You have a choice. We all have a choice. Every day, every moment of every day. How are you going to walk in holiness? How are you going to follow Christ? How are you going to serve him? How are you going to do his will? Are you going to take the law and just, okay, here's what it tells me that I need to do? Or are you going to walk in the newness of the Spirit of God? Are you going to yield to him? Are you going to live in the desert? Or by faith, apprehend the promises of God? It is always by faith, through by grace, through faith. Always. Now, we're going to discover, if you want to call it a formula, it's pretty simple, by grace, through faith. You're going to find this at every turn with everything that we find in Christ. Dead to sin? Then why do I sin? I'm sorry, by grace, through faith. That's the answer. Can you stand with me, church? I believe that there is a simple and yet profound truth that that's here for us today. And we're going to discover what this idea of by grace through faith, of apprehending and walking in the promised land, being under grace, and what that means over the next couple of weeks. So, Father, here is my prayer. I am asking you, God, would you open our eyes and our hearts so that we at least begin today to understand how we walk in the fullness of Christ by grace and not by my best effort. Father, would you show us what does it really mean to walk in your spirit? Unwrap for us this truth, God, as far as how I can follow after you with all of my heart, and be fully reliant on you. What does that look like, God? Help us. God, we can be so easily stuck in a rut of the old patterns of life and the old ways of thinking, and we keep wandering in the desert. Our sins have been washed away. Thank you for that. We've been set free from the slavery of Egypt, but we fail to enter the promised land in all its fullness. God, Please work in us and impress upon us your grace. Please, God, in Jesus' name, amen.